Get the next 10 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £1. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time, but hurry because this offer runs for a week only. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, The Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. It is the day of the state funeral of the Queen. James, we've had lots of world leaders attend today. Liz Truss also gave a reading. What were the main takeaways? I thought the striking thing about the service was, this is obviously the service that the Queen herself had planned, was how it, I thought it was fitting because it was, it was all about her role. Lots of funerals are often about the person. This was about the role that the person had fulfilled and their fulfilment of their vow given on their 21st birthday that their life would be given in service. And, and I think it was in that this wasn't about the, the things that the Queen in, enjoyed doing or this or that. It was about the constitutional function that she had performed w- with such dignity and aplomb. And I thought you also saw something else, which is uh, something that Fraser's written about, which is the sheer number of world leaders there, not, not just from the Commonwealth, but from other countries too, I think, spoke to the fact that she has been such a global figure for 70, for 70 years that she was on the throne. And the respect in which she is held. And I think there was a kind of feeling that we were unlikely to see a monarch who rules for as long again, certainly not in any of our of, of, of our lifetimes. She held, I think, a position of, of, of respect, not just in this country, in the Commonwealth, but, but, but around the world. Fraser, the period of mourning ends today and tomorrow we're expecting a return to politics. Do we expect Liz Truss to hit the ground running here? She's planning to fly to New York, isn't she? She is, that's right. The UN General Assembly meets straight off the back of this. So many world leaders will be going straight from London to New York. But her, so her big day will come not not on Tuesday or, or or anything like that. It will come on Friday. That's going to be her mini budget. Now that is going to be the real launch of the trust premiership. So far, she was she was hitting for ground running before the Queen died, but the Queen's death has given a ten day hiatus for her to prepare a lot more to see if they can make those plans a little bit more radical. I mean, right now, let's remember, but Liz Truss is somebody who speaks for language of how you need tax cuts and supply-side reforms to boost the economy, but hasn't actually proposed anything likely to nudge the dial of economic growth. All she's actually going to do is cut national insurance by 1p. I mean, that's welcome, but it's hardly going to take us from slump to growth. So we're going to find out on Friday just how serious or otherwise she is. And this is a very unusual day for a fiscal event, as we're having to call it, because she doesn't want to use the B word. But these are unusual times. There's rumours that, as well as cutting national insurance tax, she might actually announce an income tax cut. This was the one that Rishi Sunak was dangling as a reward for the country if we'd agreed to go along with his tax rises. Well, this trust is going to cancel those tax rises and hasten the tax cut, perhaps. So I think much of the commentary between now and Friday will be looking ahead to what should be one of the more significant budgets we've had in recent years. James, the main message coming from both Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, her chancellor, is they want to go for growth. Kwasi Kwarteng has been talking about 2.5% growth. And all the measures we're expecting to be announced on Friday are aimed at trying to reach this goal. Yeah, 
Of course, the question mark over this is how sustainable are the plans in terms of borrowing? We're not expecting an OBR forecast, though we, we know others will probably be around to do some of the math. Do you think one of the things to look out for is how the markets react? What's the kind of time frame for that in terms of uh, making sure this is landing in a way where it doesn't look irresponsible? So, I, I mean, there are two questions about it. There is the market reaction and the public reaction. In terms of the market reaction, I think a certain amount of this is already in the price. The pound is down about 16% against the dollar so far this year. And while that is in, so in is many ways... So and yen, you know? No, I was about to say, while, while obviously much of this is a story about dollar strength, you can't get around the fact that over the last month or so, the pound is the worst performing major currency against the dollar. And so while this is obviously a story of dollar strength in part, it is not solely a story of that. UK borrowing costs are also up. Again, this is not dramatic. And because the UK has a floating currency, the currency can take an awful lot of a strain here. I think when you speak to people in the markets, what they say is that there used to be a fairly mechanistic relationship between the pound going down and people buying UK gilts. That doesn't appear to be functioning as it normally would at the moment. I mean, that, that, if that continues, I think mean, that is something that will worry people. The second question is one of public reaction. I think mean, one of the things that hasn't happened since Liz Truss entered Downing Street because of the, the Queen's death is that Labour had this whole plan to try and define Liz Truss. And they obviously haven't been able to do that because politics is suspended. I think Liz Truss in this event on Friday, which when Kwasi Kwarteng announces these series of measures, she is prepared to risk being defined as the Prime Minister who lifts the cap on bankers' bonuses, who gives tax cuts and doesn't care that the prim- you know, primary beneficiary are, are the better off. Because her argument is that the, the most important thing as a country is to go for growth. Now, I, I think the question about that is... If you had a five-year term in which to deliver growth, as, as someone who, a prime minister who comes in after a general election does, you may well be able to say, look, I took some decisions and they weren't universally popular, but look, four or five years on, we are reaping the benefits in terms of growth. I think because of this concertina timeframe that she's having to work in with just two years to go, she doesn't have as much time. So I think the pressure for rapid results will, will, will be that much greater. I think the really interesting thing to watch for is this thing we, we talked about in the politics column this week, which is these so-called growth zones that are coming up. Yeah. Are these another Whitehall scheme in, 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 to sound derogatory? Or are they going to be, as some of the language suggests, more radical than that? Something that really is capable of essentially delivering uh, planning reform, not for the whole country, but for, but for a decent chunk of it. Fraser, the other aspect of this, of course, is the huge intervention this trust announced, even though we don't have the exact figures when it comes to energy bills. We're expecting perhaps to get some more details this week. But when it comes to there's also some talk at the moment about gas prices and what's happening there. Is there a chance that this just isn't going to be as expensive as it first seemed a week or so ago? That's certainly right, Katie. And that's where it's funny. I've just spoken to Julian Jessup, who's one of the economist who's most influential in Liz Truss's thinking. He's writing a piece for the magazine this week about this exact question. And you can look at it as the IFS have done and say, look, Liz Truss has spent £130 billion. When I first saw those estimates, I thought this was just a crazy amount of money, way bigger than the bank bailouts, etc. But the more you look into it, the more you realise just how elastic that figure is. It could be way less than that, and it could even be nothing. If the gas price never actually goes above, the cap 
less trust is set, then we won't have any cost to the exchequer because of this. So we're, we're in a very strange situation where the cost of the price cap could range from 130 billion right the way down to zero, or even perhaps more than 130 billion, who knows? No, I would hesitate to point our listeners to another podcast, but Wolfgang Munchau's rather brilliant Euro Intelligence podcast discusses this in its latest episode, Why is the Gas Price Falling? Now, what they emphasize is that there are so many factors influencing gas price, which makes it incredibly hard to predict. So we might look to the futures market, which we can see. We've started to graph it up now in Spectator Data Hub and say, look, if you want to buy gas in, in two months' time, this is what you're being charged. But also, you see the gas price falling really quite dramatically. The price peaked at just almost £6.50 per therm. That was at the end of August. But now it's come right the way down to £2.85. So that's more than halved. So if you look at this wholesale gas price, you see something which is plunging. You also see, again in the Spectator Data Hub, that Germany is doing really quite a good job of getting up its its reserves. So it's now 90% full. Now this is important because when Putin turned off the gas in Nord Stream 1, Germany was expected to freeze and it wasn't expected to do a very good job preparing, getting its reserves up. It's doing a way better job than people expected. A lot of German industry is responding by simply shutting up shops and companies going bust. So all of these things together could mean that gas prices aren't going to be quite as bad as some of the more recent forecasts, and therefore List Trust's energy price cap would not cost the $130 billion which some are suggesting. Now, that's not to say that she's home and dry, far from it. I, I really can't wait until we get some better research on just how much this gambit of hers is going to cost the country. But just suffice to say, that picture is more malleable than we might have been led to believe at first. And James, we know that Liz Truss plans to hit the ground running tomorrow. Ultimately, politics has been a suspended animation, as you talked about, over the morning period. And I think there is a sense that she hasn't had that much time to make a big impression and she plans to use the coming days. So as well as obviously the mini budget on Friday, we're expecting other announcements. What is it on the NHS we could be hearing from her health secretary and deputy prime minister, Therese Coffey? I think it is designed to kind of basically send a message that the kind of government is on it. I suspect we'll hear more of Therese Coffey's kind of A, B, C, D mantra. And I think this is in a way because, and I thought it was very telling that Therese Coffey, who is, you know, along with Quasi Quasi and Liz Truss's kind of closest political ally, has gone for the Department of Health. Because I think, you know, in some way, the health service is more of a threat to the government than, than the energy situation. Because, as you're saying, as Fraser was saying, you can ultimately throw money at the energy problem and to some extent, pretty much make it go away. While as the NHS is a more complex situation, and also I think on energy, the public understand that A, it's not this government that has made them. These are bad decisions made over 20 odd years in, in British energy policy. And also that it's Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine that, has, that, is, that is the cause of the problem. While as with the NHS, people think about the Tories, you know, you've been in power for 12 years. If there are problems, these are your fault, essentially. And so I think that I think the NHS is this big risk. And I think the kind of question now is, you know, what can they do to get through the winter? How can they find a way to recruit some more staff, something that is urgently needed, given the manpower problems facing both the NHS and social care? And also deal with this question, which is a real political issue when you talk to MPs, of how hard people are finding it currently to get a doctor's appointment. Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening.